this morning I'd like to call your attention back to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4 and verse 11. You can go ahead and put a finger there, and you have four others. We'll use those this morning as well. We have been for some time now speaking of these offices which God has given to the church as gifts. They are gifted men with the purpose of building up the body of Christ and equipping the saints for the work of service to which God has called them. We are, of course, speaking of the office of pastor-teacher. We have been for a few weeks, and we will continue for another week or two on this office before we finish up. If you'll recall, on the first Sunday we started this particular office, we defined the terms used for this New Testament office. If you haven't had a chance to hear that sermon, I'd really encourage you to do so. It's important to understand the office of pastor-teacher. Bishop, overseer, elder, pastor, shepherd, they're all the same. They're all describing the same person. They're all describing the same word. They're different words, or the, sorry, the same office, the same person. They're all different words describing the man who holds the office of pastor-teacher. After getting a grasp of the language that the New Testament uses, we then moved on to the qualifications, and we're going to pick that back up this morning. And so while you have a finger in Ephesians chapter 4, just so that you know where we are, I now also want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's a bit different, by the way, in one sense to be preaching on this subject because these sermons really relate to me and specifically the role that I hold in the church. But as we've discovered, it's vital that the body of Christ really come to understand what the leadership of the church is meant to look like. It wasn't put in the Bible just merely for the pastors and teachers. Everything in the scriptures for the whole body of Christ. And so even as we trust God to grow our own congregation here in Homer, there will be undoubtedly men who come along and the questions will arise as to whether or not some of these men are qualified to serve as leaders in our own church. And so you'll want to know what the Bible has to say about that. Maybe perhaps some of you in the future, um, I won't glare too long, may be in that position to consider. And so every Christian ought to know God's plan and design for the church. When we are looking at leaders in the church, we have to ask if these men are the type of men that are worthy of being imitated. That's really the question. If you'll recall, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So we see a pattern of leadership even in that. It's also important that you know the standard for leaders in the church because, well, these aren't just standards for leaders. We have to understand that these characteristics are characteristics that every Christian should exhibit in their life. Every Christian. These high moral standards are those that everyone is expected to demonstrate. And so they are to learn them from the men of God who lead the church and are already exhibiting these high standards. Now, Paul here is writing to Timothy, obviously, and he's addressing some very serious issues. There's a reason he's writing this letter to Timothy. There are major issues in the leadership in the church in Ephesus. That's the setting of the book here. Paul started the church in Ephesus. He's been gone for some years now. He's heard of these issues in leadership in the church of Ephesus, and so now he's addressing them to Timothy. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verses 3 through 7, Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not 
understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Well, that's Paul's address to Timothy. Far too often, I think, people, especially in our own culture, want to go very soft on leaders within the church. We just have a soft culture. It's not nice. It's not polite to expect anything of anyone these days. But when unqualified men are allowed to lead the church, this is the sort of damage they do. In Ephesus, these men were teaching strange doctrines. And by the way, the word strange there literally means another or different. And so they were teaching different doctrines, doctrines that were contrary to Scripture, to the teachings of the apostles. They were ignoring the teachings of the apostles in favor of strange doctrines. Not only that, the text tells us that they were caught up in spreading myths. These were the leaders in the church. Now, it's possible we aren't told exactly what the myths were, but it's very likely that it had to do with Gnostic beliefs. It was a major issue in Ephesus and in the church at the time. Gnostic beliefs has to do with getting secret knowledge, special revelation, well, God said to me, well, I heard God say that sort of thing. It's kind of being in the spiritual no. Whatever it was, these men who were in Ephesus fell to this sort of thing because they lacked the necessary character. They left the sound teachings of the apostles and were teaching things that were unbiblical and strange doctrines because they weren't qualified men. Beyond that, the text tells us that they were men who wanted to be teachers of the law. But then it goes on to tell us that they didn't understand the law and that they were misleading people. So all of these issues were issues within the church in Ephesus. The leaders were constantly being bombarded with the temptation to stray from the word of God. They were constantly exposed to and pressured by the culture of their day. Oh, that sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Our church today is constantly bombarded and pressured by the beliefs of our culture. Let me give you a little bit of background to Ephesus. Ephesus was no insignificant city. Ephesus wasn't just some little village on the outskirts. Pliny, who was a Roman author of the day, called Ephesus, quote, the light of Asia. In fact, Ephesus was only behind Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch in terms of prestige. It was a major, major city. It was a major hub. It was a port city. It had a huge arena in the city that, by the way, would seat more people than will fit in Madison Square Garden. Upwards of 24,000 people this Colosseum would hold. It was also the city of the Greek goddess Artemis which held the temple of Artemis, which is deemed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a significant city. And so there were mass amounts of wealth in the city, and paganism was rife throughout the city. All sorts of teachings and myths of other gods and pagan practices. And the church at Ephesus was still fairly young. And it needed strong leaders who would not be tainted by the godlessness of the day, and clearly they had become so, and so Paul addresses this to Timothy. Now, that's incredibly synonymous with the situation of our own day. Secularism, humanism, and paganism still regularly find their way into our church, in our time, into the pulpits of many, whether it's strange teachings of critical race theory, whether it's demonic doctrines of feminism or pagan practices like the Enneagram or the Gnostic practices of the Charismatic Church. They're all dangerous. They're all strange doctrines. They're all unbiblical. The church today, as much as in Timothy's day, needs leaders that are sound in doctrine and sound in character. And as we read earlier, one of the roles is so that they can refute false doctrine and error. A pastor that isn't able or willing to refute false doctrine isn't fit for the office. It's part of the job. And so that's exactly what Paul emphasizes when speaking of the qualifications of an elder, the pastor-teacher. 
He goes straight for character. And he begins with that which is the most important. He talks about being above reproach. If you will, look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so Paul's writing in light of all these issues that we've just read in Ephesus. He says, an overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, into reproach and the snare of the devil. Well, these are the qualifications in light of everything that's happening in the church of Ephesus. And not just the qualifications for those leaders, but the qualifications for any man who would aspire, desire the office of elder, overseer, pastor. So after acknowledging the need for the man to have an internal call of God, which we spoke about previously, he immediately goes to the qualification which really affects all the others. And that's that the overseer then must be above reproach. Now this isn't just for the elder. This ought to be the aim of every Christian. Every Christian ought to seek to live a life that's above reproach. Every Christian has to ask that question, am I above reproach? And yet this is mandatory for the man who holds the office of pastor teacher. The leaders in the church are meant to be the example for the flock. And so he has to already be this way. If a man has been arrested for criminal activities, for mishandling church finances, or maybe it's discovered that he's had inappropriate relationships with women in the church, what kind of example is that? Right? God's standard is one of holiness and Christ likeness, and so he has to be above reproach. Beyond that, pastoring God's people demands more than just general leadership qualities. It's very interesting. I did a Google search this week and I just typed in what characteristics does a pastor need, and you can imagine that this list was not one of the first ones that came up. In fact, it wasn't even on the first six pages that I looked through. There were a lot of other leadership qualities, but really they were just worldly qualities that you would want in any CEO. Not that they were totally unvaluable, but they had very little to do with the character of the man. That's part of the problem with a lot of the church today. While pastoring does require some of what we might consider general leadership qualities, it demands much more than that. It demands a proven moral and spiritual quality. And Paul gives no room for situational deviations in this. He says, must, must. Words are important. In other words, it's necessary, it's binding, it's not negotiable. And if there's no man available who is above reproach, then there's no one that can be a pastor. You would have to send for someone from another place. There's no time or place or situation where a church anywhere could ever say, well, you just don't understand. This is all we have, and so he'll have to do. No, God says an overseer must be above reproach. Very well then. What does it mean to be above reproach? Well, if you were to look at the word in the Greek text, the word literally means not able to be held. Not able to be held. Well, what does that mean? In other words, a viable charge could not be held against him in court as though he were a criminal. If a man were to be charged, there would have to be false charges, fictitious citations, or fraudulent allegations. There could be nothing legitimate 
Nothing morally staining on the man's character that could label him as reproachable. By the way, while we're talking about this, I do want to make it clear that we're talking about life after coming to Christ, okay? That has been misunderstood. But just to give you one brief illustration as to how we know that is the Apostle Paul himself, before he came to Christ, did what? He was hunting down Christians, persecuting the church. And if Paul here meant that you had to be above reproach before Christ, then he would be disqualifying himself, right? But not only does Paul say that once, he says it twice. He says it in Timothy and in Titus. Now, it's interesting because in Titus, different grammar is used. It says, if any man is above reproach, and that is using the present indicative. In other words, it's the man's present condition. Okay? This is also not to say that the man has to be perfect, and I don't want us to misunderstand that. Okay, there are two errors that we can get into when it comes to qualifications. We can look at these qualifications and we can say, well, who could ever measure up? Well, in some sense, no one. But it's not demanding perfection, but it's rather demanding a very high standard. So above reproach, he's not able to be honestly held as a criminal. His life has not been stained by some sinfulness that would keep him from setting the highest standard of living for the flock of God to follow. And this qualification really encapsulates everything else. If a man fails here, he'll never meet the standard of excellence God requires of leaders in the church. Likewise, if a man lives without blemish, not perfection, but he has this character, then his character is something that could rightly be imitated by the body of Christ. I mean, this issue of character is so incredibly valuable. It's vital in the church, and we see that even from the beginning, right? Again, going back to Ephesus, we see that the lack of character has created a lot of issues, there are people in Ephesus who were rising up, and because they didn't have the character, they were really wreaking havoc in the church. Some teaching myths, it says. Others were teaching to abstain from marriage and certain foods. They were domineering over the people. These leaders were sinful, and they needed to be corrected. And so Paul tells Timothy to instruct these men, to correct these men. And then he addresses the character issue with the qualifications now, it's interesting, in the next chapter, Paul continues on, 1 Timothy 4, Paul continu continues to warn Timothy of the kind of teachers that would do damage to the church. Listen to what he says here in verse 1. He says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith. Well, how will they fall away? Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Well, how is that going to come into the church? It's going to come, verse 2, by the hypocrisy of liars who have been seared in their own conscience. What are some of the things they're going to teach, Paul? Well, they'll be those who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God created to be shared in with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. These are just two examples. For everything God created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So these men were causing all sorts of trouble in the Ephesian church. And I think we can quickly understand why the Bible puts such a premium on character. Both for just the Christian and especially for the Christian leaders. I can't tell you how many large platforms over the years have fallen to some horrendous public sin it's an affair or theft in the church or whatever it is and after he steps down because the church has no real high value for the qualifications at least it appears that way that man quickly springs up as a pastor in another church within a year or two this is a common occurrence in our society a classic example of this is the defunct pastor of mars hill 
a mega church in Seattle, Washington. Some time ago, he was removed from leadership for using church money to fund a best-selling book scheme. He wrote a book, and then he used a bunch of the church's money to buy his book so that he would end up on the New York Seller's Best Author list. Not only that, but he was incredibly harsh and inappropriate with the people of the church, and so he was removed. Well, now he's the senior pastor of another church just a few years later. This was all very public, by the way. It all made headlines, and although he has clearly disqualified himself for life in terms of church leadership, he already has another congregation, and it's not a small one. Well, another pastor with a platform had an affair, left the ministry, divorced his wife, married his mistress, and was then restored to the ministry again. After a few years, it was discovered that he and his new life were engaged in all sorts of debaucherous activities and had to leave ministry a second time. And then within a couple years, he's now back in ministry as a pastor. And he currently has tens of thousands of followers. The things that happened were so wicked and disgusting that I can't say them publicly. No value for the qualifications of an elder. And you might think that this is just a small occurrence and a small percentage of the church, and I wish that that were true, but sadly, it's very common. The Apostle Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And every leader in the church is able to say, the same. How can a leader who's fallen to those things look at a congregation and say, imitate me? Well, you can't, because he's not above reproach. The man has to be not or has to be above reproach, not able to rightly be accused or held as though he were a criminal. And he must be able to say with humility, follow me as I follow Christ. I want to move along in the text after it tells us that the overseer must be above reproach. The next thing it says is that he has to be the husband of one wife. Now, I want to consider a few things here in this section because this one has caused some confusion within certain parts of the church. If we were to read the text literally, it actually says a one-woman man is the literal translation, a one-woman man. And so Paul here isn't speaking of the man's marital status. He's actually speaking of sexual morality, of sexual purity. If it was simply that a man was married, then there would be no emphasis on faithfulness. There are a lot of married men who aren't one-woman men, if you understand what I'm saying. Being married doesn't mean you are faithful. So Paul's wanting to continue the emphasis on character, so he moves from being above reproach to at once going to sexual purity. Well, before we get into the heart of the meaning behind one woman man, I do want to deal with some of the most common ways that this is misinterpreted and used in the church, and sadly it's created quite a lot of frustration and unnecessary heartache amongst those who would otherwise be qualified as leaders in the church. One of the beliefs is that the man must be married. Well, we've just talked about this. This is one of the easier ones to refute, I think, simply because the man who wrote this qualification was not married, the Apostle Paul. And by the way, the Apostle Paul wrote half of the New Testament minus one book. Beyond that, guess who else wasn't married? Jesus and no one would dare say he's not qualified. So clearly that is not what the passage is meaning. Okay? Beyond this, if you'll recall earlier, we read from 1 Timothy chapter 4 that it was hypocrites and liars seared in their own conscience who forbid marriage. And so marriage is a good and godly thing. The second thing that some have thought throughout history at times is that what this meant is that you can't be a polygamist. Okay, well, I said the first one is the easiest. Maybe this one's the easiest. I don't know. Um, 
that the husband of one wife very simply was in opposition to polygamy. Well, I think John MacArthur makes uh, the best point here. He says, a man could not, however, even be a member of the church if he were a polygamist, let alone a leader. We understand that, right? If you have more than one wife, you're an adulterer. And so it's not talking about that. But not only that, remember Paul's addressing issues where? In the church at Ephesus. And polygamy was not a common practice. It wasn't common with the Romans, and it wasn't common right, in the Jewish culture. And so it wouldn't make sense for him to talk about that. In fact, it just wasn't necessary. If someone wanted to be promiscuous, the opportunities were abundant and socially acceptable everywhere. So it wasn't even a thing that was practiced in that period as such. Well, the last way that this has been interpreted, I think, is arguably the most prominent view today, especially in some Baptist circles. And these would say that Paul is forbidding anyone who was ever divorced from leadership in the church. And so because this is what I think the most commonly held view here, I want to spend a little bit more time here. I want to look at the Word of God. We're going to go to a few places, and I want to show you why this cannot be what Paul means. Now, remember, Paul speaking of moral character. He's not speaking of marital status. And so we need to ask the question of the morality of remarriage and the morality of divorce. Does a remarriage or a divorce automatically constitute Someone who no longer is above reproach. That's the question. Well, the first thing to notice, if you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, is that Scripture encourages second marriages in certain circumstances. It encourages second marriages in certain circumstances. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Just to give you a little background, Paul is now giving further instructions on how things are to be done in the church. One of those issues to which he speaks is how the church is to care for widows. Did you know that it actually isn't the church's duty to care for every widow? Did you know that? There are boundaries. But he also gives some insight into how God's view, into how God views remarriage, at least in one circumstance. Put your eyes down on verse 3. So here's the Apostle Paul dealing with this issue. He says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. So children, take care of your parents. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in petitions and prayers night and day. But she who lives in self-indulgence is dead even while she lives and command these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list, this is other words for the church, right, to be served. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. In other words, a one-man woman, having a reputation for good works. If she has been brought, if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in affliction, if she has devoted herself to every good work, you see, this is a qualification for the church to serve widows. Verse eleven. Here's where we're going. But refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desire and disregard of Christ, they want to get married. In other words, he's talking about widows who have become widows, and they say, you know what, I'm not going to get married, I'm just going to serve Christ. And then they feel this desire because they're young, they want to get married again, and they abandon their commitment to celibacy, to serving Christ, to get married. And so Paul says, rather than that, because that's not good, 
thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. And he says at 13, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house. We don't have to do that anymore. You can do that on Twitter or Instagram or wherever. And not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no opportunity for reviling. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing woman has widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed." So it's pretty clear that God's general desire here is actually for young widows to remarry. And the reason is that it's so that they give the enemy no opportunity for reviling. It's for their own good. Not only is there no moral failure in a widow remarrying, but it's actually to guard against the enemy. The widow in this sense is a one-man woman. We're told in 1 Corinthians 7.39 that a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And so some have asserted that this disqualified widowers. Clearly that can't be the case, right? When we see here that scripture encourages the widow, to remarry for the sake of holiness. Now, some might say, well, but that's just the woman. It disqualifies the man. Well, that doesn't really make much sense either. And we have to let the scripture decide. If you can get there quickly, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I'll read it to you. It says this, Now it was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone divorces, who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So it's not a problem to remarry if you're a widower, widower so... Now the question is, what do you do with divorce, right? This is really the big challenge. What do you do with divorce? This is the most contentious issue when it comes to church leadership. Let me read that to you again. Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In Matthew 19 and verse 9, Jesus repeats the teaching, and he says this. He says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. As someone might say, well... <clears throat> God hates divorce, and so if you're divorced, you can't be a leader. And they would appeal to maybe Malachi. However, we clearly see an exception here. I mean, there's a clear exception here, right? Except for sexual immorality, except for adultery. God is the one who has given the exception. And so God, although he does hate divorce, he's gracious to the faithful party and he allows divorce for two instances. This is one of them. If the spouse commits adultery with another, the faithful spouse is allowed with God's blessing to divorce and remain morally pure while the other is an adulterer. This is how God views divorce in this instance. Now, the second instance, because there's one other exception. Now, we're really, remember, looking at what a one-woman man looks like. Can a divorced person be a one-woman man? Well, we see in the first illustration he can, if that's true. But here's the second one, 1 Corinthians 7. If you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I want to take a look at it. 
And actually, I want to read from verse 1, a little bit lengthy, but so that you have the full context here. It says this, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a command. Yet I wish that all men were even as myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, one this way and another that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, if he consents to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Verse 15. Yet... If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not enslaved in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct all the churches. Did you get that? The second exception is if... The man is married to an unbelieving wife and the wife wants to leave, he can let her leave. And so we find two exceptions we often refer to as the exception clauses in Scripture. That doesn't mean there's moral failure. And that's one, if there's a divorce because there was infidelity. And two, is if there was a divorce because an unbelieving spouse leaves the marriage. These are the exceptions given by God. And so we can't say that divorce is sinful for both parties in all circumstances. The circumstance makes all the difference. It doesn't necessarily mean that a man is reproachable or that he's not a one-woman man. Paul was, and so we come back to these two issues, Paul was single, Christ was single, so we can't say that the married, that man has to be married to meet the qualifications. We don't really have to worry about polygamy because you can't even be in the church if you're a polygamist, right? And we can't disqualify man simply because he has a divorce. The details of the divorce matter. Now, it could be that the divorce does qualify him, but if he's the innocent party and all the other qualifications are met, then he could still be a one-woman man. Now, having said that, a divorce in a man's past can't simply be ignored either, which is the other danger. These are God's standards of morality and character for leaders in the church, and we've got to take them seriously. If there is a divorce in a man's past, then the details have to be worked through with the other elders in the church. He has to be measured against the weight of Scripture. If he was the offending party as a believer, then he's disqualified as a leader. If he was an innocent, then at least in that qualification, he may be fine. Leadership in the church is incredibly vital. It affects the life of the church. It affects every ministry of the church 
and it affects the lives of the people in the church who, as Hebrews says, are meant to submit their lives to the leaders. And so it's imperative that we never ignore the scripture's teaching by adding to it, as many have done here. And we also can't ignore it by treating it casually and ignoring what's commanded. Now, now that we know what a one-woman man is not, what is it? So we know what it doesn't mean. What, is it, what does it mean? Well, for starters, it means a man. Let's just be real clear. A one-woman man is a man. A woman can't be the husband of one wife, right? A woman can't be a one-woman man. It's weird that I almost have to put a little footnote here because of our current society, but it doesn't matter what ridiculousness society says. A man can't be a woman, and a woman can't be a man. You're either a man or a woman, and you're born the way God's made you. And so a one-woman man is a biological man. Leadership in the church is restricted to qualified men only. Now notice I said qualified men not just any man, a qualified man. Like I said, I realize the culture doesn't like that, but to be quite frank, I don't really care what the culture likes. The culture doesn't own the church. God owns the church. It belongs to God, and this is God's good design. And let me say that this has nothing to do with ability or equality Men and women are both valuable in the sight of God. This has nothing to do with that. This comes down to the fact that God created men and women, though equal in value, with different functions. I mean, we understand this, at least those of us with sense. Men can't have babies, and women can't be pastors. It's really just that simple. So what else is a one-woman man? The language here is speaking to someone who is totally devoted to one woman. That is, if he's married, right? If he's not, he's devoted to sexual purity. But the phrase isn't about marital status. A one-woman man who is, is a man who is in every way devoted to his wife. He has eyes only for his wife, his desires only for his wife, his thought life centers around his wife. She is his helpmeet, and he is pleased by her and her alone. This is what a one-woman man is. A man who loves only one woman, devoted to only one woman, and in this way he maintains his personal holiness and sexual purity. Paul writes to Timothy addressing the issues of bad leadership in Ephesus, partly because he knew the dangers and temptation of sexual promiscuity and adultery. You think it's easy in our culture. It was even easier in their culture, if that's even possible. There was ample opportunity to engage in activities unfit for a man of God in leadership. Really unfit for anyone claiming Christ. And it's no different in our day. And so there's a high premium on sexual purity It's interesting that this qualification is the one that often gets leaders in the church today. A great majority of those who fall in ministry fall because they aren't one women men. One of the most recent examples is a megachurch pastor of Hillsong. You all know Hillsong. They're very popular for their music. A woman came forward just in March of this year and confessed that they had been having a secret affair for five months. This was just this year in March. When men fall in the pulpit, it brings reproach upon the name of Christ. And this is one of the many reasons that the man in the office must be held to God's high standards. Now, Hillsong is a large church, right? They're a big-name church. And to be quite frank, I think the devil had a field day and Christ's name was reproached, and it wasn't just reproached in a small group of people, but all over the world. Because you know what? People all over the world picked up the newspaper just after that exposure, and the New York Post and the headlines ran, read this in big, bold letters, Hillsong, a megachurch exposed. 
What does that communicate to the world about the church? Sadly, just a few months before this happened, another Hillsong pastor stepped down after being accused of embezzling church funds and covering up child sex abuse. And then it was discovered that he had inappropriate relationships with several women in the church. He wasn't a one-woman man. I'm sure if they were to evaluate these men, they never would have been qualified to begin with. If a man is to meet this qualification of being a one-woman man, he must have eyes, ears, heart, and mind for one woman alone, his wife. And that is, by the way, the expectation of every Christian man or woman. You're, if you're married, you're either a one-man woman or a one-woman man. And if you're single, you're committed to sexual purity. Now, the last thing I want to say concerning this qualification is that there are sins that you can commit as a Christian and they don't necessarily disqualify a man from ministry. And, and we've got to put a little bit of balance in here because the expectation can't be that a man's perfect. There has never been but one man perfect, and that was Christ. But there are sins that if committed as a Christian would disqualify that man for life in terms of the office of an elder, and this is one of those sins. You can never be above reproach if you're not a one-woman man. That man can never be above reproach if he's violated that qualification. If a man commits adultery, he's disqualified from church leadership for life. And we're talking about as a Christian, right? He's an adulterer. The scripture labels him that way, and he'll never be beyond reproach in that way. Now, again, we have to be clear. This doesn't mean that a man who sins in this way couldn't be forgiven, or a woman who sins in that way couldn't be forgiven. That's not what we mean. They certainly can be forgiven. He could be repentant. He can be restored into the fellowship of the church. He can serve the church in other ways, but what he can't be is in the leadership of the church. This is God's design. And this is God's perfect design because he loves the church. It's his good design because he loves the sheep. And so he demands that leaders will care for and nurture the sheep. He demands leaders have these qualifications so that they won't fall into the snare of the devil and drag others with them. So that the world can't make a mockery of the church as has been demonstrated in the examples earlier the church is meant to follow the leaders as they follow christ and so you have to have leaders committed to following christ the church should not look like the world you can read up read those papers time to time every few months it seems like men in the church fall to these issues and you pick up the paper and you almost want to say so what it's the same as every major corporation today. Another man falls. Another man has a side relationship. The church should never be seen to be like the world. And so to protect the church, God has these very high standards for those who would lead in the church. So they have to be above reproach. They must be a one-woman man. The, the local church will never rise above the leadership. Do you realize that? The church is never going to ultimately rise above its own leadership. And so if you have men who, although imperfect, are striving after holiness and godliness, you will find a church that over time reflects holiness and godliness. Likewise, if you have leadership who care very little about holiness and godliness, you will find, like what was in the Ephesian church, a lot of damage, a lot of unqualified men teaching strange doctrines and leading people astray. And so it's vitally important that the office of pastor elder is held to these standards. 
And as we're thinking about that, you should be thinking and reflecting on your own life. Do you live up to these standards? This isn't just for the man in the pulpit. Is your life above reproach? Are you committed to being faithfully in sexuality? And as we go on, each and every one of these are just Christian characters. They don't just apply to the man in the pulpit, but they apply to everyone in the pew as well. It's just the man in the pulpit has to be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. And he has to be above reproach to do that. So, as you guys think of our little church here in Homer, as we grow, be praying for godly men who can come and help lead God's people here. Maybe some of you will be that in the future. I don't know. And then I would ask, secondly, that you especially pray for me. Sometimes this sermon's a little bit awkward because I read through this all during the week and I come to recognize the burden and weight again of the office to which God has placed to me. And so I desperately need your prayers as your shepherd here. And then consider yourself, too, your own life. Is your life such that you could tell another Christian to follow you? as you follow Christ and as you disciple them. It's everyone's responsibility to disciple others. Are you above reproach? Is your life such that no one could hold you justly for something that would be a reproach? Is your life such that you would be a good witness for the church? Or would it be an embarrassment for the church? Are you a one-woman man or a one-man woman? If you aren't married, are you pure? These are all questions to ask yourself. If there ever really was a good list to point to for every Christian to obtain and strive for, it would be the qualifications of an elder. These are just, it's just the character of a Christian. It's just that the leader has to be there already. That's the very reason the Apostle Paul could in fact say, imitate me. He wrote these being a man who was not perfect but qualified. And because he was qualified, he could say, imitate me. Let's pray.